My following episode contains subject matter that is not for everyone. Please exercise listener discretion. For those of you that are loyal, regular listeners, first of all, thank you. Secondly, you may remember my interview with the filmmaker Gia Wirtz a couple of months ago about her um, documentary about a man who had been wrongfully uh, accused and wrongfully convicted of rape and murder. It was more like a boy than a man. But either way, I finally got a hold of Jeff, the boy that went into maximum security prison for raping and killing a fellow classmate. But as you all know, or maybe don't, he didn't do it. There was DNA evidence that would have exonerated him of this crime, and yet his defense attorney simply didn't use that knowledge. I sat with Jeff over a Zoom call for about an hour, and we discussed everything from his upbringing to his trial to his time in prison and how he dealt with it after he was released from prison eventually. Sit back, relax, get ready for about an hour or so of listening, and um, I hope you enjoy it. I really had a good time interviewing Jeff. Here we go. From Wikipedia. Jeffrey Mark Deskovic, born October 27th, 1973, is an American man from upstate New York known for having been wrongfully convicted in 1990 at the age of 17 of raping, beating, and strangling Angela Correa, a 15-year-old high school classmate at Peekskill High School. He then made a false confession, which he withdrew, and his DNA was excluded from that which was left at the crime scene. He was nevertheless convicted based on police testimony that he had confessed. He served 16 years, although he continued to maintain his innocence and even appealed his conviction. He requested post-conviction DNA testing, but the DA's office, then headed by Janine Pirro, refused to accept his request. After a new DA was elected and Deskovic gained support by The Innocence Project, in 2006, DNA testing was conducted for Deskovic. It excluded his DNA from the evidence at the crime scene. Significantly, the forensic DNA was found to match that of an inmate already serving time for murder. The latter man confessed to the attack on the young girl and was convicted in her death. Deskovic was exonerated and released in 2006. He had become an advocate for criminal justice reform. In 2014, a jury found in favor of Deskovic and awarded him $41.6 million in a federal civil suit against the county for wrongful imprisonment. But due to his pretrial settlement with the county, Deskovic was limited to receive $10 million. He has since then set up a foundation to work for reform. This is the story of Jeff Deskovic. I'm Jeffrey Deskovic. I'm the founder and uh, president of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. 
And uh, I also am uh, an, an, an attorney and I'm an advisory board member of the coalition group. It could happen to you, which the foundation is part of. Thanks, first of all, for taking some time to answer some questions and chat with me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time as well. Thanks for having me on. As Jeff sat down in his chair for our interview, he looked professional. He had a dark three-piece suit on, a nice tie, and hair combed back. He reminded me to hit record on the Zoom meeting, which was pretty nice. And we jumped right into the questions, since most people already know about his situation. What was your life growing up, Jeff? What was your upbringing um, as a young man? Yeah, I would describe myself as a, as a typical kid. I mean, uh, in the apartment complex that I grew up in, which was in Peekskill, it was in uh, Westchester County. It was a suburbs. It was uh, middle class. It was ethnically diverse. Uh, after school, I would say I was kind of like the life of the party. So whatever I would suggest that we do. Uh, would be what we would do, the kids that live in the compartment complex in the nearby area. So whether that involved playing basketball or riding bikes or going swimming, playing Monopoly, video games, or even had a bunch of games that we invented. Uh, so so that, was that was growing up, but I kind of lived a double life. I didn't think of it that way at the time, but that was my life after school, right? And about the only thing I didn't do after school was I really didn't play any organized sports. But in school, I was really quiet to myself. Those weren't the same group of kids, uh, particularly not in uh, particularly not 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 in uh, the Catholic school. I grew went to grade school at grades two through eight. Certainly not in the uh, in the high school, where the kids were actually like a year or two older than me. Because when I was really young, I skipped a grade, so they were all older than me, and I really wasn't into what they were into. They were into drinking beer and parties and chasing girls and organized sports. <laughs> the usual stuff, I guess, for some kids at that age. Correct. Jeff, I don't know if you're probably not aware, but a lot of my listeners are already aware of your story. I had Gia on here a couple months ago, and uh, she piqued a lot of folks' interest in your story. So um, I do. I have a, a little intro at the beginning that I will be playing to kind of introduce you. That's why I'm jumping right into it, just not as not to waste any time. But um, at the age of 16... Did you have an idea already of what you wanted to be or what you wanted to do in life? I did. So at 16, I wanted to be an attorney. But before my teenage years, the career I wanted to have when I grew up was actually to be a cop. But just when I became a teenager, then that thought evolved and I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. That was mostly because my mother had a personal injury attorney and he you know, he was dressed in a suit and he had the Apache case and seemed to be well-respected. And he appeared to be earning a very good living. No, you know, there's a lot of kids that say, I want to be a, an attorney. My son says he wants to be a police officer. He's only six years old. So, you know, there's a long ways to go, but that's kind of like the thing that a lot of people say. Uh, we'll get into that later, but you actually became one. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. My dream still came true. I'll be on a much more circuitous route and a more delayed route, but it, but it happened nonetheless. And that is something to celebrate for. So I Absolutely. agree with you there. Absolutely. Um, Jeff, do you remember what you were doing the night that you found out that Angela Correa had been murdered? On November 17th, 1989, the body of Angela Correa, a 15 year old Peekskill High School sophomore, was discovered with blunt force trauma to the head. She was raped and strangled. She was last seen alive on Wednesday afternoon, November 15th, 1989. 
Her body was found in a wooded area near Hillcrest Elementary School in Peekskill, New York. Yeah, I was, uh, I had played with one of my childhood best friends, uh, both the day that she went missing and the next two days. We had, we had a string of three days in a row. We had this very, we made up this very innovative way of playing wiffle ball one-on-one. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And, and uh, so I was, uh, I had played wiffle ball. And then later that night, I drove my bike from my uh, friend's house. It was a very, you know, relatively short distance between where he lived at and the apartment complex. Um, I want to say it was maybe four to five blocks, but like up the hill, but it's up the hill going. So coming back, it was really, <laughs> really fun ride on the bike, actually. And I remember reading the uh, the newspaper. It was uh, November 17th, the newspaper. Um, and, uh, you know, it had a picture of Angela. It, it uh, had a had a picture of the uh, park where her it, it, uh, park where her body had been found. The article said that she had been found murdered. She was naked from 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 the waist down. The headline said team found, which was, of course, a follow up to the prior article that that same newspaper, the Evening Star, had printed uh, on November 15th, where it just simply said teen missing with their picture. Now, we know that the police used you in a, in a certain way that uh, maybe you weren't aware of at the time, but did they ever take you in for questioning against your will? Yeah, I, I get the short answer is yes. Just to, to put a little bit of color to it, uh, I, I was on my way to school. And the there's really from where I lived at in the apartment complex and the high school, which was literally next door, just up a small hill. But you could both places could see each other. There was only two ways to get to the high school from where I lived at. And it would have been really out of the way for me to go the other way. So it wasn't all that hard for the cops to figure out which route I was going to take. And so when I took that route and I was halfway up that hill, I was, you know, intercepted uh, by, by the police. And, you know, they were in plain clothes and they told me that they wanted me to, uh, come to the police station. They wanted to talk to me about the Korea murder and they wanted me to try to help them. And I told them, well, I can't, I don't see how I can be helpful because I don't know anything about it, but they insisted that I be helpful. And they took me to the, the police station and I was there for, uh, most of the day, the, the, interaction dynamic between me and the police was that they initially were talking to me as a suspect. And then when they pushed too hard and I wanted to get out of there, I became frightened and they, they switched it up. And Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was what was pushed, which of course intersected to my pre-teenage year aspiration of wanting to be a cop when I grew up. Uh, they did the good cop, bad cop routine as well, where one officer took a more aggressive role and his partner pretend to be opposed to what's going on, but powerless to intervene. So there was that day. And then there was a bunch of meetings that I had with the police for the next six weeks, which six weeks, which all, you know, had that same uh, dy- dynamic. But I mean, they they were they were overreaching me. They were pretending like they needed my help to solve the crime. when in fact, I was, you know, I was really just the target of a homicide investigation. And eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test. They told me some new information came into the file and they wanted to share that with me and that would allow me to be more helpful to them. But first I would have to take and pass a polygraph test. So the next day, rather than report to the school, I went to the police station where I heard the rumor mill that the um, other people had been polygraphed. 
because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother thought that I was in school. They didn't realize that anything was wrong. So they didn't call around looking for me. There was three cops came with me from Peekskill. Uh, the bad cop and the lieutenant were in one vehicle and they put me in the vehicle with the, with the good cop. I mean, he did read me my rights, but I didn't understand them. I was 16. And that was further, the meaning of them was further obscured by this Jefferson's junior detective helper. And they're telling me that I'm taking the polygraph, uh, you know, in order, in order to uh, help them so they can give me this new information. So I'll be more helpful to them. Uh, so I, they drove me out of County from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, they drove me to town of Bruce, which is in Putnam County. So 40 minutes away by car. Uh, that meant I didn't know where I was. Uh, I was not able to leave on my own. I was totally dependent on the cops. I didn't have an attorney present. I wasn't given anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. So from there, they put me in a small room. And then they, they gave me the polygraphist. The polygraphist, by the way, was the Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, Daniel Stevens. And he was dressed like a civilian and he never identified himself as a police officer and he never read me my rights. So so he when he put me in that small room, he gave me countless cups of coffee in order to get me nervous. Now imagine this for a moment. You're a parent. You think your child is at school. They're really in a police interrogation room where the police interrogating them are giving them coffee to drink in order to get them to fail the polygraph test. Would you be upset? But you don't know it's happening, so... And, and that intersects with the polygraph because the premise of the polygraph is when a person tells a lie that the, the polygraph claims that if a person tells a lie, then you'll get nervous. The nervousness will result in an increased pulse rate. And it's actually the pulse rate, which is measured by the machine. But other factors which would lead to an increased pulse rate would be fear and uh, caffeine. And so from there, he launched into his third degree tactic. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And as each hour passed, my fear increased in proportion to the time. Towards the end of the interrogation, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. So when he said that to me, that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off but couldn't do so any longer that I had to help myself when he added that if I did as they wanted, that they'd stop what they're doing, that uh, I could go home afterwards, that I was not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just being concerned with my own safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and that nobody else knew where I was either loomed very large in my mind. You know, then there was this possibility of harm. And then he you know, this false life preserver he threw me. So I made up a story based on the information which he had given me in the course of the interrogation. And in the six weeks run up to that, by the time everything was said and done, I had collapsed onto the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Uh, obviously I was arrested, you know, I was charged with a murder and rape.
Now imagine you've been in a police interrogation room for hours. You're 16 years old. You've been drinking countless cups of coffee. And there's a man who previously pretended to be friendly, now yelling and invading your personal space. This action causes your heartbeat to rise. That's the evidence, quote unquote, that the police had against Jeff. That's what they used, a polygraph. They then coerced a false confession from him, which they used, despite the lack of DNA evidence, or if you want to think of it this way, the DNA evidence that would have proved that it wasn't Jeff that did the rape was completely omitted. The trial still continued and Jeff was still found guilty. I take it that your mother and your grandmother, grandmothers, excuse me, they were not aware that you were there? No, they were no, they were not aware. No, they thought I were in, they thought I was in school. You know, and, the, and the cops knew, and the cops knew that they didn't want me to be speaking to them. And I knew that too. But, you know, I, I didn't understand what the harm is. It's the police, right? They're there to help us. And then they're telling me that, you know, I'm there to, to help them. And I know I didn't do anything. And then plus we're at, I'm at that age at 16, where a lot of kids think, you know, we think we know better than our parents. So all those factors, you know, resulted into that. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. At that age, I thought, you know, the government couldn't, wouldn't lie to me. I thought that it was, you know, you couldn't be a police officer unless, you know, just good, good people only were police officers and great people were involved in government. And that's just the way I grew up with that, you know, just idea in my head that they wouldn't do anything to me to harm me. You know, I think that's probably what happened to you at that age as well. Um, yeah, I agree with you. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, besides the polygraph, Jeff, was there any other evidence or anything that they had suspicion, you know, a suspicion on that you had committed this crime? Well, they didn't have any other evidence in terms of how I got on their radar to begin with, uh, just not fitting in in the school. So they interviewed a lot of students from the high school and some of them told the police that I might want they might want to speak to me. In addition to that, uh, this was really my first brush with death. And I was a sensitive teenager and I had an emotional reaction to it. And the cops thought that my emotional reaction to the death of someone that I barely knew, who was just in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore, that I really had no relationship with at all. I wasn't even on a high buy basis, that that was some sort of sign that, you know, I was sorry for what I had done. But it really didn't make much sense because there hadn't been a murder in Peekskill in maybe 20 years. And this really emotionally affected all of the city of Peekskill to the point that free mental health services were offered to anyone who wanted it. Uh, and so in that aspect of it, I really wasn't all that different than anyone else. And the third reinforcing characteristic is that they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching those. So that was kind of a reinforcing factor. But that all goes to the matter of how I got on the police radar. I mean, in terms of actual evidence against me, all they have is this uh, coerced false confession. Which wouldn't have happened if you would have had an attorney present, most likely. Right. Just like, just like you know, if they didn't do the threat and they didn't do the false promise, it wouldn't have happened either. I mean, altogether, I mean, they had, you know, they had interrogated me for six and a half to seven hours. 
I can't even imagine, Jeff, at that age, I remember what I was doing at 16 and it, it would just blow my mind. I couldn't even fathom what you went through, man. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry that happened to you and I don't even know how if I could cope with it myself. I probably would have done the same thing and broke down. Well, just for, right, just for context, I mean, you know, uh, coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions and 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. And, and although adults have given coerced false confessions, that particularly vulnerable populations are people, you know, with uh, mental health issues uh, and youth, which, you know, I was definitely a youth for sure. Wow. So you were convicted of the rape and the murder and you were sentenced to... I was sentenced to 15 to life. I was sentenced to 15 to life. And just the wrongful conviction was caused by the coerced false confession, along with the prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, and a terrible public defender. You know, I was convicted despite the uh, there being a pretrial negative DNA test result. So there was semen found in the victim, which didn't match me. But rather, but rather than acknowledge that they made a mistake, they continued to prosecute me anyway. And the that's where the fraud by the medical examiner came in, that after the DNA didn't match me, he suddenly claimed that he forgot to document medical evidence that he showed that the vic that he said showed the victim had been promiscuous. And that's what allowed the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the DNA didn't match me. She might have slept with yet another person. And then he took it a step further and he named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim, but he never tried to prove that. He never called him as a witness. He never asked him for a DNA sample. Yes, you heard right. The prosecutors argued that the semen found in Angela's corpse was due to the fact that she was promiscuous and had just slept with someone. And the so, you know, and then, you know, my lawyer essentially didn't challenge that. Uh, the victim's family was not coming to court, so they had no idea of what was being what was what was being said of Angela in the courtroom. So ultimately, yes, I was con I was convicted, and then I, I I was I was given a fifteen to life sentence, and that was despite the judge telling me on the record, you know, maybe you are innocent. He he said sentenced me to a, a fifteen to life uh, sentence, which you know is an adult sentence. I'd been charged as an adult. I was sentenced as an adult, and I was um, sent to a men's maximum security prison uh, in Elmira. Do you feel like, as an attorney, that was something that your defense could have possibly won the case with, or it was a strong point? Hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So my lawyer should have explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He was supposed to use that to argue that that proved that the confession was coerced and false. Uh, when you're defending a case where there's a, convict, where there's a confession, you know, there is an 80% conviction rate in those type of cases. So you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove that confession in as many ways as you can, and you bring it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. You know, he never interviewed or called as a witness my alibi. Uh, he would not allow me to take the to take the witness stand either. Uh, he he uh, he should have. He didn't challenge the medical examiner with his fraud. He's suddenly remembering it, when it's time for him to cross examine him. He was supposed to try to discredit him. But instead, he stood up in open court and said, uh, you're going to be pleased to know that I don't have a single question for you. 
So he never cross-examined the medical examiner. And really, he should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. So this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of Westchester County Legal Aid and specifically by the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. And so that conflict prevented my lawyer from asking him to give a DNA sample. It prevented my lawyer from calling him as a witness to explode the whole consensual sex theory. So yes, this is a case that could have and should have been won. So going into prison at that young age, a maximum security men's prison, how did you cope or what did you do during your time in there? What could you do? Well, in terms of what I did, I mean, I tried to make use of the time. So I got a GED. Uh, I took advantage of the educational program. So I learned to type. I took a class on general business and computer repair, which just involved using the computer in a workforce setting. I worked as a teacher's aide. I got an associate's degree. I completed another year towards the bachelor's at the time. The funding was cut for college education for prisoners. I took the plumbing class, worked as a teacher's aide for a year and a half. I worked in food service. So I did all those things in terms, but that's in terms of what I, how I, how I filled the time. But I also went to the law library a lot to learn the law so that I could proactively assist in my uh, defense. I used to read articles about other people who were exonerated just as motive, as inspiration to continue, continue going. And I wanted to learn like who helped them and what route did they take? I wrote a lot of letters looking, looking for help. Uh, And I also, from 1998 forward, I read three or four nonfiction books a week. There were different tactics that I used in order to try to survive it. I mean, certainly belief in God was one thing. Another thing was that I didn't focus on the 15, the life sentence. I thought that I was just doing a year or two until the next appeal would happen, which I was sure I was going to win because I was innocent. And I believe uh, in, in the system, certain euphemisms, like instead of, you know, going to your prison job in the morning or your prison job in the afternoon, I'm going to school or I'm going to work, you know, it's, uh, it's the, it's the super and not the prison warden. It's the superintendent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, they gave us televisions in the cell and while well, they allowed us to purchase televisions in the cell, uh, for cell in cell use. So for the most part, my TV was off because I was doing legal work and writing letters and reading books. But when I would burn out and I'd need to rest my brain, I would turn the TV on, but, and I would watch certain programs each week, but I engaged in this elaborate delusion that I was really just visiting friends. It's like, similarly, when I was, would play sports, I, I used to play uh, basketball and chess and ping pong. And again, I engaged in this elaborate delusion. Like I pretended that, you know, I was a professional player and so was everybody else that I was playing against and the people waiting for next, that was the audience. And when we went to the gym, that was a road game. And we went to this other uh, armory location that was at home, but, but, it, but it, but it wasn't really like kids fantasizing when they're playing sports. I mean, I needed to leave the prison for a couple hours mentally. And so that was my release. I used to listen to sports talk radio, but it wasn't, it wasn't listening to sports talk radio. It was a, like a lifeline to the outside, but in, and it wasn't just uh I mean, it was very dangerous. I mean, you know, I had a bullseye on my back because I had was was in prison for you know a, a rape along with a murder, 
And there's a vigilante mentality was people have been convicted of sex offenses. You know, so it, prison was dangerous in general. There was maybe three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. And there was a lot of other violence and there was gangs. So it was dangerous overall. Uh, but then, you know, I was at that particular disadvantage that I that I referenced uh, to you. So throughout the years, I mean, there was times where I was uh, beat up one time. I nearly uh, lost my life. Uh, the food was terrible. I mean, sometimes it was burned. Other times it wasn't uh, fully cooked. It's still other times, you know, the, it was an insufficient portion amount. So all those things. Then I, I had to keep fighting off repeatedly over the years, thoughts of, um, of uh, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, uh, suicidal ideation. So I had to overcome all of those things. And Really, every time I lost an appeal, which, you know, all told, I lost uh, seven of those, you know, each time I lost, uh, that really, really hurt me in a lot of different ways, you know, because it's how can you hope for something? How can you pray for something without coming to believe in it? And then when it doesn't go your way, it was almost like being re-wrongfully convicted all over again. Well, side note. One of the judges that Jeff crossed paths with figuratively was Sonia Sotomayor. That may sound familiar to you. That's because she is the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. She was appointed by President Barack Obama on May 26, 2009. But at the time, Judge Sotomayor was on the Federal Appellate Court. On April 28, 1997, an appeal reached the court. However, the appeal was due April 24th, four days earlier. On April 26th, 2000, a two-page letter co-penned by Sonia Sotomayor read as follows. We have considered all the petitioner appellate's remaining arguments and find them to be without merit. Exactly nine years and one month later, President Obama nominated her for the Supreme Court. President Obama spoke of how he wanted a judge with superior intellect, but also a very empathetic judge, a judge who would use, quote, common sense, unquote. Now, although I didn't get a chance to ask Jeff about this, I figured he might think differently. I don't speak for him in any way, though. But it must have been frustrating to see someone who denied your appeal so quickly be nominated with such high praise. So, Jeff, how did your exoneration finally happen after seven appeals, failed appeals? So I wrote letters for four years looking for an attorney and an investigator to take my case for free because when your appeals are exhausted, the state doesn't provide you with a lawyer anymore because you're done litigating. The only way back in a court is if they change if they make a retroactive change in the law or if they you find some previously unknown evidence of innocence, which is which would be enough to probably have resulted in a different verdict. Hence writing letters so that I was hoping that uh, the lawyer, I could find a lawyer and, and or an investigator and they could try to unearth some additional evidence of innocence. So I went to the parole board and because I maintained my innocence, 
rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, you know, I was denied uh, parole uh, based largely on that uh, with the parole board decision also referencing the uh, nature of the crime. So at that point, I felt for pretty certain I was going to die in, in, in prison. But I continued to write letters anyway. A, a pen pal that I didn't know answered a letter that I put in a Sacramento small newspaper. And so he helped me continue going morale wise. I mean, I was openly asking him, should I just quit? Should I just kill myself and be done? I'm never going to get out of here. I, mean, I was openly asking him that. But he encouraged me to keep going. And I did keep going. And so I continued to write letters. And one of those letters I sent to a book I sent to I I, I sent it to a book publishing company for them to forward it to the book author, but instead they forwarded it to an investigator, the Claudia Whitman. And as soon as she saw that the DNA didn't match me, she believed in me right away. And, you know, she uh, gave me the winning idea. She said, you know, write the Innocence Project, you know, uh, again. And she also lobbied them from outside their organization. And she got several other respected legal entities to also lobby them. And then I got lucky that uh, one of the intake workers, uh, Maggie Taylor, when the Innocence Project attorney didn't want to take the case, you know, she represented it a second time and they didn't want to take it again. And she represented it a, a third time and finally they agreed to take it. So getting the representation was the first key. The second key was the former Westchester District Attorney, Jeanine Pirro, who does a lot of commentary on television now, She who fought all seven of my appeals. Uh, you know, she wasn't the DA when I was convicted, but she did take office before my appeal was decided. So she fought me in seven appeals. She blocked me from getting further DNA testing several times. She left office and her successor allowed me to get the further DNA testing. So her leaving office was the second key. And the third key was that we took the crime scene DNA evidence, which already didn't match me, and it was entered into the DNA data bank. We got lucky that it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was in the data bank because left free when I was doing time for his crime. He killed the second victim uh, three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and had two children. Yes, you heard it correct again. While Jeff was behind bars carrying out his sentence, the actual person who raped and murdered Angela was still free, where he committed another murder. The murderer's name is Stephen Cunningham. For about 17 years, he was able to keep a little dark secret. A secret that kept Jeff behind bars for almost 17 years. When they finally realized that the DNA evidence wasn't Jeff's, well, when they finally admitted it, Cunningham was already behind bars for the murder of his girlfriend's sister, Patricia Morrison, who was also a mother of three young boys. Cunningham later admitted to the murder of Angela Correa. He said he strangled her during sex. In a rage, he also then went on to say, if he had known that someone else was paying for his crime, he would have spoke up sooner. Yeah, right. You're only sorry when you get caught, right? The point being that if maybe they wouldn't have focused on Jeff so much, they might have not only caught the killer, but stopped another woman from being killed and little boys from losing their mom. So based on, and then he, subsequently uh, confessed 
So based upon that, the conviction was overturned September 22nd, 2006, and I was released, and I went back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. Wow. Incredible. So what was the first thing you did when you walked out of the prison of free man, Jeff? I mean, everyone wants, you know, everyone asks that question. What would you do? What's the first thing you did? Yeah. Well, I mean, I went, well, firstly, I mean, I actually was released from court. So they took me from the okay. prison to the court and I was allowed to go home from, from the court. Well, there was a press conference, which I was totally unprepared for. There was a lot of media there and, you know, my lawyer spoke. And when it was my turn to speak, uh, I, my first words were, you know, is this really happening? No, I really could. I really, I thought like I finally managed to lose my mind and I was in some delusion and, but I was going to come to at some point and I'd still be in the prison cell and see the walls and the bars. It's almost unreal. I mean, it would be unreal, right? It, it really, it really is unreal. Yeah. And from there we went to a restaurant to have a luncheon. I remember my first meal was, uh, I had uh, mussels with fried diavolo sauce. I had a, <laughs> a side order of big CD. Uh, I wanted a little bit of Neapolitan ice cream for a dessert. They didn't have any, but they did, they did sell strawberry ice cream. And they also had like a combo of vanilla and chocolate. And I asked them, well, could you just put it into one container? And <laughs> 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 all. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, from there, I went to my aunt's house because my mother had moved out from Westchester. So my aunt was in Rockland County. And I really would love to tell you that we had this really raucous party that lasted to the crack of dawn. I'd love to say that to you. I'd love for that to have happened. But the reality was by that point, I had, you know, I, I lost all my friends really when I was arrested. Most of my uh, extended family had not come to see me at all ever. And the few that did would come and disappear for three years and come and disappear. So I remember I went when went to her house. We were just sitting around the table. They were talking about everything and, you know, had coffee. I was just sitting there just kind of stunned and just feeling out of place and really being unable to relate to anybody that was in the room. You know, another member of the extended family came over. So at some point I just got up and sat outside in the dark. I just wanted to say in the dark, because in the prison, when they get, it starts to get dark, they close the yard. So I just got to do that. And then I took a bath for the first time in 16 years and wow. I went to sleep. And that was really my, that was really my day, but I really felt, I really felt out of place. And at times I, I still didn't quite believe that it, 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 that it all had happened. I don't, I didn't believe that I was actually out and at other times, I didn't believe that I actually had been in, that I actually had been wrongfully convicted, that I actually served 16 years in prison. Wow. How long did it take to get over that feeling? Uh, was, it, was it difficult to adapt to you know, what we call normal life after that? It was very difficult to adapt to normal life. I mean, as time passed, like a year or two, the intensity of that feeling passed. But I still had other residual after effects, like every now and then I felt like something was metaphorically tapping me on my back shoulder. And what, mm -hmm. what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Everybody else is out here as normal, but you're acting like you're one of them, but you're not. And, and other times it felt weird to have keys. Or to be driving a car or to 
have freedom of movement and to go pretty much wherever I wanted to go that I could afford to go. And nobody knew there was no past. Nobody knew where I was going. There were no security checkpoints. So that all felt weird. But I think as time went on, you know, uh, as, as the more time passed and the more I learned technology, so the more I learned technology, the more tied into the world, I felt the less out of place that I felt, uh, the technology was different. I mean, cell phones, GPS, uh, internet, none of that had been created. Cities and towns didn't look the same. Culture was different. So taken cumulatively, it did feel like I was in a parallel world that I didn't belong in. So that happened. Um, but even now, I mean, now I feel a lot better. I did see mental health professionals. I used to see them uh, four times a week for six years. Uh, but every, even every now and then now, I, it, it, I do, it doesn't happen often, but even now, in fact, last night, just before the, you know, last night, um, which is dated, I felt this feeling like it felt really weird to be, to be in, in, in the world and to be in this mode of living where you're, you're free and, you know, there's, you have a refrigerator and you can stay up all night if you want to, you can go outside, you can go on the balcony, you can eat something, you know, it, it just, it feel, you know, there's bills to pay and you can do nothing at all, or you can go through the daily activities of life that all of us do as part of a routine of living, but it all felt weird. It all mm -hmm. felt crazy just to be living and to be outside. That just goes to show you how much of an effect that being in prison, incarcerated has on somebody. You've spent majority of your life out of from behind bars, and yet you still feel the after effects of being behind bars. Correct. Yeah, because I lived my first, you know, sixteen years free. Then I did sixteen years in prison, but I've been home for fourteen years now. So if you add it up, you know, I've I've doubled up the amount of time I've lived as a free as a free man rather than incarcerated. But still, the still those. Uh, still those after effects but i'll also candidly share with you and the listeners that i still don't feel like i've really fully been able to put my life back together socially mm. you know most most of us uh, most people you know they have their friends from high school i lost that they have their friends from college they have their friends from work you know they carry them through their life Gradually, people drop the, drop off, but they're replaced. Some of those people introduce you to other people so that when they drop off, you still have those other people. So you still have the social network. I mean, even an immigrant coming to the country that maybe will find an enclave of somebody from the country there, all they have to do is meet one person, and that person will introduce them to other people. And it's they very quickly put together a social network. But if you don't have that initial... Uh, human resource, where do you start? And that's kind of like where I, where I am. Who, who, am, who are my peers? Who, who are my peers? I still want to throw a ball around. Okay. I want to do the bumper cars. You know, I still want to, I still want to play basketball. Yeah. Uh, I still want to throw a ball around. I, I want to do new things, new activities, try, try new food, you know, but the, People my age, they're in a totally different way of life. They're married, they have a serious relationship, they're working. They don't really seem to be have much of a balance in their life. 
So they just come home, you know, eat something, watch a little bit of television, go to sleep and wash, rinse, wash, rinse, repeat. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for recreation. I want to I still want to have fun. And when six o'clock rolls around or seven o'clock, I want to have people to call up. Hey, you're free. Let's get together. Let's do this. Let's do that. I'm coming over. Hey, come on over. Come, come see me. But if you don't have people to do that with. So really the interest that I want to do, I mean, that's more of a younger person. But then when I start to go lower down age wise, those people aren't my peers either because mm. they're, I'm 47 and, and you know, I, I think I look okay for my age, but nobody would confuse me with a 25, 26 year old. <laughs> I don't look like them. Okay. So, and then on top of that, you know, on, 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 on top of that, while I do feel this disconnect between uh, emotionally, psychological, the disconnect between that and my physical age, and while in some ways I'm more like somebody in my 20s, at the same time, I'm also a lot older than what my age is. So uh, people that are younger don't have the same level of maturity. I mean, you know, to stop and think ahead and what could be a consequence of doing something. You know, I, I have that sense in me. Mm -hmm. So that's not quite the right, the same. That's not really my peer group either. And most people have their primary and secondary relationships already put together. So there's not really much room for me to be anything other than somebody that's on the peripheral. Wow. So I that's mean, a difficulty. I even think about that. That's, that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's got to be a little difficult for you. I, absolutely. Sure. And just to share something, just a few other different aspects as we're trying to talk like comprehensively here, give a whole picture. Part of what made my transition difficult was that, you know, I had been in prison from age 17 to 32. So when I was released, uh, which was with nothing, by the way, right? The state, they when they release you, you can seek compensation, but that's, you file a lawsuit, that's a process. It wound up taking me five years. You know, there was no assistance at all provided to me whatsoever by the state in getting from point A to point B. Uh, so it was a very difficult existence my first fi uh, five years. Uh, you know, I was never able to obtain gainful employment. You know, so I lacked stability of housing. At one point, I was a couple away from, uh, weeks away from living in a homeless shelter. Thank God, Mercy College, which gave me the scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree. They allowed me to live on campus. But, but there's, you know, there's also stigma. You were in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with me? Then, then there's also, and I was always passed over for gainful employment. I, I was making money doing speaking engagements, but that's not a consistent form of income. I was a weekly columnist, but they only wanted one article uh, a, a week. Now, aside from that and the, there's a psychological after effects. Uh, you know, it's normal for people who've been wrongfully imprisoned to have experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks, anxiety, feeling of having been frozen in time, feeling feeling of um, processing things at a slower speed. I, I did the explain the cultural aspect, but the other part is just, uh, and I started to go there before, just having been in prison from age 17 to 32. So when I was released, I had to do things for the first time that I had never done before. So I had never lived on my own before. I never went shopping before. 
I never had to write a check. I didn't have to get my own mail. I didn't have to uh, uh, balance a budget. I, I had I hadn't had a driver's license. So all of those things were made what would be difficult for anybody uh, made it particularly uh, challenging for me. I don't, I don't think about that stuff. You know, you're right though. There's a lot of things between when you went in and when you got out that, you know, you missed out on and you had to learn that most people are taught or they, you know, they see it or they, you just kind of thrust into it. Um, so tell us about uh, becoming an attorney. I know you started your education in prison so what happened? How long did it take afterwards for you to get the ball rolling and, and uh, finish up? So it took a few months to get started. So Mercy College had uh, it made it made a, it made in local newspapers a human interest item associated with my exoneration that I was uh, thirty credits short of the bachelor's degree, and Mercy College offered me a scholarship to finish it, which was kind of like an intervention in a way because. Uh, I had I was incorrectly thinking rather foolishly that I was too old to go to college, mm. but I really didn't know what what to do. Uh, and so when I was approached having nothing else to do, I decided that I would finish the uh, the bachelor's degree. Uh, so I did I did do that. Uh, I had all the difficulties that I just we just covered, but I was simultaneously doing a lot of work as an individual advocate. Uh, I was speaking, writing. That was part of the advocacy. I was doing television, radio, print media interviews. I was regularly meeting with elected officials, and from there, I I was able to springboard from the bachelor's degree. I got a master's degree from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. My thesis is on wrongful conviction causes and reform. And after about five years, I was financially compensated. And so I used some of the money to start uh, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, intending for that to be a legacy and whose purpose was to free wrongfully convicted people and prevent what happened to me from happening to others. So the policy arm of it. And, you know, we've been able to free 10 wrongfully convicted people and pass three laws in New York. Um, you know, better identification procedures, videotaping, interrogation, DNA database expansion. Uh, as advisory board member of the coalition group, it could happen to you, which the foundation is part of. We were able to pass four additional laws. So oversight for prosecutors, a tweak of that, uh, discovery reform. So there's a better procedure in place now for sharing information automatically early in the process between defense and prosecution. We passed automatic expungement in Pennsylvania, so people who were exonerated there had still had records. But to answer, to, that's all the backstory to get to my answer about the lawyer. At some, at some point, it became not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and represent some of the clients and make some of the arguments. And uh, so hence my foray into law school, and I I recently became an, an, an attorney, you know, in, in pursuit of my dream of exonerating others as, uh, as, as an attorney. Hmm. As an attorney, Jeff, what are some policy changes that you are currently pursuing? So we're trying to repass the oversight for the prosecutor. So the, the district attorneys association of New York, they didn't want any oversight. So they brought a lawsuit challenging the law that we, we had passed, uh, arguing it was unconstitutional. The judge rejected their arguments, but found a problem in the in the appeal procedure. So, the statute was declared uh, unconstitutional. So we're we were in the process of repassing. In fact, we have passed it again in in the New York Assembly. But we're we're working on it's almost passed in 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 the Senate. 
So we're doing that. And then also when they passed the law mandating that police interrogations be videotaped, it came out watered, watered down. They made exceptions for sex offenses, drug cases, and certain types of murder charges. So we're trying to get rid of those uh, exceptions. There is a bill in the legislature which would prevent the police from using deception in interrogations because it's uh, coercive. So we're supporting that. And then there's uh, there's a couple of bills pertaining to parole. So it would uh, so first. So what's what happening is that instead of the parole board determining whether someone should be released on parole based on whether they've been rehabilitated or not, um, you know they. They, they usually deny parole and just reference nature of the crime, which is something that's never going to change. I mean, you know, to deny based on that is, is to abandon any pretense of belief in rehabilitation. So there is that. And then also there's what's called elder parole, which would mean that anybody who's 55 and has also served 15 years in prison would, would be eligible to have their case reviewed by the parole board to decide if they would be paroled. So that's in New York. But we're working in New York, Pennsylvania, and California policy-wise. So in Pennsylvania, uh, we're working on exoneree compensation. So Pennsylvania is one of 15 states that does not currently offer compensation. Wow. So we're working at fixing that. And then the oversight for prosecutors. Uh, in California, again, the oversight for prosecutors. And where we think that there's a chance to get, you know, uh, abolish the death penalty in California because it, you know, the obvious risk of executing somebody that's innocent. So those are the, those are the policy changes that, uh, you know, I'm supporting this. There's another bill in New York, uh, which would provide attorneys for people who are going to file a post-conviction motion. So right now, you know, so remember when my appeals were over and I no longer had a, a, an attorney. So this would provide an attorney if there were grounds to file a post-conviction motion, it would it would uh, uh, a result that automatic people would get attorneys. But the other thing is that the way the law is now, if somebody pled guilty, then they would, if they're later, if they later develop evidence of their innocence that they didn't know before or had been withheld in the way the law is now, they're, they would, they're not allowed to argue actual innocence. They're not allowed to argue that. Whereas this bill would, would allow, would allow a claim to be considered. So those are the, that's the legislation now. In terms of cases, you know, we currently we have freed ten people, and we're working on another uh, ten cases as well. And I, I've entered a few of those cases as uh, co-counsel. How do you decide, or how does the organization decide which cases that you're going to take on? Sure. So, firstly, it's a decision that's made by consensus. We do have uh, three case uh, analysts, so. You know, and we, we, we try to achieve a consensus. So we, we ask ourselves a question. We ask ourselves two questions. Uh, so firstly, does the applicant have at least a plausible claim of innocence based on something objective? And secondly, do we see a potential route to victory? So only if we can say yes to both of those questions that would we actually agree to take a case. How does the organization receive funding? Because I know this is not cheap and it's not free. Right. Absolutely. Right. You're right on both count. Uh, uh, both counts. So I did give us a running start with the money that I um, contributed, a uh, portion of which was from from the lawsuit. But look, uh, all I was thinking about was just the program services. I wasn't thinking about the development side of it. So after about three years, 
you know, I couldn't continue to write a large check each each month. I thought I could just have a program staff and, you know, I would meet with donors and people would write checks and it would be great. So I had to get rid of the paid staff. I converted the organization to a volunteer entity. Um, we've been, uh, we have, you know, there's, uh, I have two part-time people now, one person who does policy and helps with fundraising and another person who does um, secretarial things related to the cases, like gathering the legal documents so that they could so that the completed file could be sent to the case analysts. We have, have about 20 volunteers and there are about six different lawyers that when we approve cases, we pitch the cases to the lawyers in contemplation of their taking it on pro bono. So that's how we're doing now, as opposed to not doing anything at all. But the ultimate goal is to, again, have a full-time staff because the problem is that sometimes what you know should be done in maybe eight months or a, or a year winds up taking two or three years. So the goal is to again have a staff. But in terms of how we how we've uh, made money, we've uh, so we've gotten some individual donors to donate some money, and we've uh, we've also uh, received a, a couple of uh, grants. And we also have our crowdfunding site on, uh, there's a website called Patreon, which is for people who are willing to be recurring monthly donors. So my dream is what if there were 25,000 people who on a recurring monthly basis were willing to sacrifice $3 or $5 in order to help free wrongfully convicted people and for us to do the policy work, expand our policy work. So we have you know, we do take on some income through the Patreon campaign and, and some people choose to donate through uh, through through PayPal. Uh, we we are the, the foundation is registered uh, on Amazon for the Amazon Smile program. So what that is, is Amazon in that program, people can register for a nonprofit organization and that and uh, when they make a purchase, then Amazon will donate a small pro- portion of the purchase to the organization without it increasing uh, the cost of the consumer. But we are targeted. We are looking for additional donors. We are looking for uh, additional board members. And at some point, it would be great to find a celebrity spokesperson who could help us raise the profile of the organization. Uh, My biggest challenge is that, you know, I need third parties who can function as connectors to introduce me to people that the cause may speak to. I mean, I kind of arrived at where I am. So in terms of socioeconomic status, just artificially through the lawsuit, I didn't come up in business 10, 20, 30 years. So, you know, so I'm always trying to find people who can, you know, be connectors and it's a soft sell. This is, these are our, here's our accomplishments. Here's where we're trying to go. You know, here's how the metrics that would be measured. Is this something that, you know, interests you? Or is it not the right fit? I just want to be able to get into those conversations. So hoping some of the people, you know, listening, you know, to this interview, you know, if there's people they could introduce me to or they have some interest themselves that they would consider us. So I was trying to network that way. Great. Yeah, I, I did. I went on the Patreon and I signed up and I saw that, you know, initially it's just asking for a dollar, a dollar a month. Mm. It's a minimum. Mm. That's, I mean, that's, that's nothing, Jeff. Right. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, you no, know, right. I, and I feel most people like me would be like, oh, that's not enough. So I signed up for a little more, but uh, uh-huh. I'll make sure to put these links all in the show notes. So if you're listening, please check out the show notes. I'll put the Amazon uh, link, the Patreon, Patreon link and anything else here uh, related to Jeff and the Deskovic Foundation uh, for Justice. Last question, Jeff. Um, when you look back at your life, when you're mm. an old man, you know. Mm. Will you feel happy with the way it turned out? 
Yes. Yes, because I, I have a mission in life. I have clarity. You know, I'm doing something meaningful. I, I have inner peace and I feel like I would have made a difference. And those things, those things matter a lot to me. And I guess you could say in a way I kind of found myself. I mean, I, you know, I overcame, you know, really extreme adversity. But I somehow or another managed to, well, through the grace of God, really, I shouldn't say it's one way or another. I mean, it's, you know, uh, but I came out the back end and, you know, and then I tried to do something about it as as per preventing this from other people and, you know, reaching back into prison, helping other people. And, you know, I, I feel like it's meaningful and I do feel like I've helped move the needle a little bit. And, you know, that's really how I make sense of everything that happened to me. And, now, and I, I take the energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work that I do. And that's how I'm not an angry or bitter person. And you know, I, I feel so fortunate that I, I'm out, that I'm free, that I'm exonerated. So many people are not. Uh, I have had some opportunities that other people haven't. And that's part of the reason why I you know, feel a great moral responsibility to do what I can to try to improve things rather than just going on some never-ending vacation, which I could do if I wanted to drop everything. But but morally, I could not because that would not be my purpose in the world. That's, that's a great answer. Jeff, um, I want to give you the opportunity if I missed anything or if there's anything you'd like to add in, any information, anything like that, uh, please. Well, I just want to quickly mention there's a couple of other organizations that I'm affiliated with. Um, you know, there's... Uh, Restorative Justice International, which you know I'm an advisory board member of. Obviously, I'm a global. I'm on the Global Advisory Council, and so I I'm their in-house expert on wrongful conviction and criminal justice issues. So I, you know, I lay issues out and then I give them my opinion when they're deciding like which way they're going to go as far as as, as an organization. And I definitely see restorative justice as applying to wrongful convictions in terms of trying to make exonerees whole again and the uh, healing conversations that can happen between exonerees and crime victim family members. You know, as and there is a societal application of that. I do feel strongly that there should be reentry provided to exonerees immediately. Things like housing, mental health services, doctor, dental care, uh, job training, job placement, access to public transportation, classes on technology, and, and, and passing legislation to prevent this from happening to other people. I think all those things are examples of restorative justice. Um, and each time the wrong person is convicted, it leaves the actual perpetrator free to strike again. That's what happened in my case. And you know, I am part of the National Justice Impacted Bar Association. I'm an advisory board member there, and that encourages people who've been impacted by the system to enter the legal profession. So I think that that's uh, important because when you've experienced the justice system, whether wrongfully imprisoned or even rightfully, rightfully imprisoned, you still learn a lot about the system. And so to reach back and try to improve things to make it a more just, a more fair system, I think is important. And that's one of the things that I really love about conviction, you know, the documentary that Gia made is that I use some of my time on camera just to try to carry water for 
some of the other justice reform issues, things like elderly people in prison and medical care and compassionate release and prison reform and parole reform and college education for prisoners. And I just, I feel like the justice system is deficient in so many different ways. Yeah, so those are those are all the things of, you know, that I just wanted to mention to everybody. And look, this this could happen to anybody. Yeah. It, it could happen to you. And that's a scary thing. I mean, it really is. It could have been, you were somebody's son. You are somebody's son. It could have been my son. It could be the listener. It could be your child. It could have been anybody, anybody, absolutely anybody. So um, thank you for what you're doing, Jeff. Um, I did one thing popped into my head right now. Sure. There's a picture of you, and I think you're on a light post. Or you, yes. You're kind of like resting on a lamp post. Or you have a cell phone or something in your I hand? I have a cell phone. Yes, I have a cell phone in my hand. I'm wrapped around a, a, a post. I'm barely holding on to the phone. Um, my head is hunched over. My eyes are closed because I'm in the middle of crying. And what was happening in that moment, as I travel back there and close my eyes now, people can't see, but I'm doing it. At this point, Jeff proceeded to close his eyes and he kind of tilted his chin toward the sky a bit. I could tell that he was seriously in the moment that he was speaking about, even though it happened years ago. I also could be mistaken, but I felt like he got a little emotional in the moment. Either way, I could literally feel the emotion at this point in the interview. I'll post the photo to the Instagram account so you can see for yourself. So just to recreate the moment. So it was the combination of everything just hit me at once. Just having been wrongfully imprisoned for 16 years, you know, not everything that I missed and being released with nothing, having the psychological after effects, being lonely, uh, being out of place. This is not my, this is not my world little ways to earn any type of money and just kind of being there mostly on my own all just came together and is encapsulated by by that picture and it just happened to be that there was a photographer there uh from the new york times at the moment that that all happened and i i remember just being on the i don't even remember who i was on the phone with and I was just, you know, just totally overwhelmed and crying and my eyes were closed. I, I don't know how I even held onto the phone, really. Oh. I could feel the emotion in it. That's why I wanted to ask you, of all the pictures I've seen, that one was, I, I got to know what was going on there. Yes. Thank you for sharing that, Jeff, by the way. Absolutely. Thank you for asking me the question as well. Well, that wraps it up, Jeff. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you chatting with me. Thank you. I will make sure to add all the links. If you have any other ones too, you want to shoot over, I will add them all to the, to the uh, show notes. So anybody listening, please check out the show notes um, for information, um, ways that you can help, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, Jeff, again, thank you for your time. Much appreciated. And uh, we look forward to seeing some good things coming out from your way. Absolutely. I'm looking forward as well. Please share the link with me and I'll promote on social media as well to share the interview. Thank you. You you, you made me feel <clears throat> very, very comfortable in this interview. And so I do thank you for that. I can feel your warmth and your empathy. And that means a lot, man, particularly coming, you know, just from prison where it's a very cold place where there's a lot of indifference. There's a lot of 
you know, disturbance in the in the world, you know, and a lot of times the you know, as a prisoner, you, you perceive the world as being cold and uncaring. I mean, I at least I did with all the letters that I sent, not getting any responses. So that's definitely in marked contrast to, you know, the dynamic here that we developed in the interview. So I want I do want to share with you that that was not lost on me. Thank you, Jeff. I then ended our Zoom chat and took a deep breath. Do you think Jeff woke up that day knowing or even thinking that he might get arrested for murder? We don't think about these things. And although there's a slight possibility it could happen, it just never really pops into our head. Unless you're a sicko. I know you true crime junkies are sickos. (laughs) Anyway, I'd like to thank everyone who had downloaded, listened, streamed this episode I had an incredible time doing it, and uh, please check out the show notes. I'll post all the links you guys can check out, more information, or if you want to contribute, you can do that too. I know this was a different episode type than I usually do for the Area 81 podcast, but I absolutely love doing it, and I know I'd like to do more like this in the future, but for the most part, don't worry, the normal programming of Area 81 will be back with the next episode but please if you like this one share it with people let people know who might be interested true crime friends out there and anyone else that uh, might want to give it a listen thank you guys very much Um, I don't get paid to do this so I do it for y'all anyway much love and I will be back in action soon thank you guys again